Well, it's now my honor to turn in God's Word, preach from this morning. We come to the conclusion of 1 Corinthians, as we'll be reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. And once again, this is God's holy word, as we know he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So here we read the final verses of this letter. As we do so, let's attend with reverence to this reading because it is the inspired and therefore inerrant word of the living God. Again, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 through 24. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. May we pray. Lord, indeed, we pray that as we have read your word and as it is exposited here, that its reading, its preaching, its hearing would be blessed. We ask especially that through the proclamation of your word this day, each one of us might, by your Holy Spirit, be built up in love for Jesus Christ and for his people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the conclusion of 1 Corinthians, we see that love for Christ and his people has been really an overarching principle throughout the letter. It's something that we find from beginning to end. The first several chapters actually address divisions in the Corinthian church, of course, which were a result of the lack of perfect love in the congregation. The congregation was factionalized over which teacher each identified with the most. As Paul addressed that problem of divisions, he also showed that the church has a true spiritual unity in Christ through the true gospel, which is the power and wisdom of God. And the Corinthians' lack of love and consideration for one another was preventing spiritual growth. It was leading them to build on the foundation of their salvation in Christ, things that would not last into the world to come. They had failed to be concerned enough for one another to carry out proper church discipline. Uh, Many were embracing their former sinful lifestyles with no consequences. Now that's not loving to allow that to go on in the church. Uh, Today's idea of love, the culture's common concept of love, might tell us it's loving to affirm one in his sins. But it's not loving to allow a brother or sister to go unwarned and unchallenged for things that would be incurring God's wrath. Paul's loving concern here leads him to lovingly counsel Christians how to live properly in marriage or singleness, as we saw in chapter 7, and when divorce was allowed and when not. We'll 
be dealing a little bit with that, Lord willing, this evening. While many in Corinth stressed their own liberty of conscience over concern for their brothers <coughs> and for their brothers' consciences, uh, Paul pointed to patience, to self-control, and to care, not, not to wound the conscience of a brother or sister. Some even perverted the Lord's Supper by their divisiveness and their callous behavior. Some were emphasizing the spiritual gifts they had and uh, preferred, while dismissing the importance of the gifts that God had given to others in the congregation. And this led Paul to write his great discourse on love in chapter 13, and to follow that with deep teachings emphasizing what actually edifies the church, and that that should be the uh, first concern of every Christian who loves his brothers and sisters, that, that we would want to edify one another. And we would prefer, therefore, the things that are edifying to the whole church. And after that, he taught about the reality of resurrection to counter the divisive and destructive influence of the resurrection deniers. In the final chapter, we find expressions of Christian love emphasized as a collection was taken up to relieve the Jerusalem church. Along the way, lots of other lessons have been learned, but this principle of love has been a common thread throughout the whole letter. So fittingly, Paul ends the letter by teaching about love. And he does so rather subtly because this is just a typical sort of close to a typical letter. But we see here that love for Christ is central to a believer's life. Such love does several things. Number one, it produces an eager desire for Christ's return. Number two, it connects believers to Christ's apostles. Third, it binds Christians together as a family. And so, number four, it creates a worldwide connection between one believer and every other believer. And then finally, we see in this passage it results from grace. We might have said that first, but, but it's the last thing mentioned, so I'll uh, place it last here in the things that we see in this passage. I'm going to start actually with verse 22, then work backwards before jumping down to, to verse 23. Uh, verse 22 is pivotal to this passage. In it we find our main point. Love for Christ is central to a believer's life. The first part of verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Notice that Paul says that anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ should be considered accursed. That's really important. Notice it's not a simple observation, though. Of course, mankind is under God's curse for sin. And those who do not love Christ remain under that curse. But this is an instruction. It comes in the form of an instruction. Let him be accursed. The Greek word there for accursed or cursed is anathema. Let him be anathema. In the Septuagint, the ancient translation of the Old Testament into Greek, anathema was used often to translate the Hebrew word that means devoted to destruction. As when the people of Israel came into the land of promise and the Lord would tell them about places like Jericho, for example, you will devote it to destruction, which meant they weren't going to, 
to take anything of its treasures for themselves. In fact, they got into trouble because man, Achan did that. Uh, but uh, they, they were not supposed to take any treasures of it for themselves. They were simply to consider it off-limits. Destroy it and don't touch it. That's not to say that Christians are supposed to carry out capital punishment. That's not what Paul's teaching here on unbelievers or apostates. Nowhere does the New Testament teach any such thing. And in fact, uh, to the contrary, uh, the scriptures like Romans 13.4 teach us that that's, it's the civil authorities, not the church, that bear the power of the sword. But rather, Paul is saying that we must treat people who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ as if they are bound for destruction. And then that sense of being off limits is also important here. Those who never repent and love and trust Christ will only receive God's wrath. More pointedly, anathema in the New Testament era was used to refer to people with whom a, a certain group must have no fellowship. And there's where the, the sense of the, the city devoted to destruction would be something that would be off limits. You're not supposed to touch it. Christians cannot have spiritual fellowship with those who do not love Christ. There can't be any interfaith worship services or anything like that. Even if they're called Christians or calling themselves Christians or claim to have a high regard for Jesus, as many Muslims would say, for example. Remember chapter 5, verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's that's treating someone as anathema. They're off limits, in a sense. Now, remember in that context, he said, you'd have to go out of the world to have no contact with people who do these things, and they're not believers. But what I'm concerned about is for the sake of the believer who's doing these things, that you discipline him, and that he might need to be expelled from the church for a time, hopefully for the purpose of getting him to wake up to his sin and repent. But that would be and anathema there. You're having no fellowship with someone. Notice who it is that Christians are to treat as anathema. Those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in context, we would see here somebody who has proclaimed or professed to be a believer, but who clearly does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And those three words together mean a lot. The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. That's the same word, actually, anathema. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When we dug into that verse back when we were in chapter 12, we also looked at, at Romans 10, where in verse 9, we find that we have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. And then in, in Romans 10, 13, we see that saying that Jesus is Lord is the same thing as calling on the name of the Lord. Paul uses the same Greek word in both places, kurios. And he uses it there in verse 13 to translate Joel chapter 2, verse 32 in which we're told that those who call upon the name of Jehovah, of Yahweh, will be saved. So in other words, Jesus is Yahweh. 
And Paul is emphasizing that here as well. The Jesus we love cannot be the Jesus of popular culture or of the new age or of our own imagining. He cannot be the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who is not Jehovah. He can't be the Jesus of the Mormons who is not one God with the Father. And even the Father God used to be a man. He's a completely different God than the Bible reveals. He can't be the Jesus of Islam who is a prophet and the Jewish Messiah but not the Son of God. The Jesus you love must be the Lord God himself in human flesh. And he is the one who is also Christ, Paul says here. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's anointed one, the prophet, the priest, and the king who has promised to be our savior. As John says in 1 John 2 verse 22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So a love for Jesus, for who he truly is, is what Paul's talking about here. And it's necessary to have that love for Jesus, for who he truly is, because it is central to a Christian's life. And such love for Christ has certain effects. Number one, as we see in this passage, it produces an eager desire for Christ's return. Of course, if you love Jesus, you want him to come back. It's the, the end of verse 22. Paul says, O Lord, come. This is the same thing that John says in Revelation 22, 20, essentially. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Paul, of course, is eager for the second coming of Christ for many reasons. He'll be resurrected. Paul will be resurrected to dwell with Christ in the new world. Christ will be glorified. Any Christian, by the way, who's, as we saw before, still alive, when that happens, will be changed, given a glorified body, as everyone who's raised from the dead will. Christ will be glorified fully and vindicated before the world, that has rejected and ridiculed and ignored him. And if we love him, don't we want that to happen? We want the world to see him for who he really is and for what they have ridiculed and rejected. But also it's the time when, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, 32, that he'll separate his sheep from the goats. And that includes separating what elsewhere he calls the tares from the wheat. Those who profess Christianity but haven't borne fruit. And Paul's been dealing with this. You say, let, let anyone be accursed if he doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And, oh, Lord, come. <laughs> so, so that we can tell, so that we'll be able to separate the sheep from the goats. If you have a genuine love for Christ, that love will be vindicated. There won't be any nominal Christians anymore. There will no longer be those who claim to belong to Christ while denying resurrection, as Paul dealt with in chapter 15, while hating their brothers and sisters and thereby despising Christ. True Christians are eager for that to happen. We would rather that before that happened, those who are not repentant would repent. Those professing Christ but not showing the fruits would actually bear the fruits. We would prefer that. But we want either way for Christ to be glorified in showing who is his true disciple. True Christians are eager for that. They're eager for Christ's return in glory. 
and for the full consummation of his kingdom. Not just for what it gives us, but for what it shows of him. Love for Christ produces an eager desire for his return. A second thing we see is that love for Christ connects believers to his apostles. Which means, of course, that we're going to take them seriously. Verse 21, the, the salvation, or the salutation, excuse me, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. In chapter 1, verse 1, we saw who the author of the letter is, who he claimed to be. Uh, he refers to himself as Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. But most of the letter would have been written down by what was known as an amanuensis, somebody in the place of your hands. That's what that means. Uh, a secretary of sorts who either would write down what the author of the letter dictated or would copy out in a more legible script the, uh, the letter of the original author. But here Paul authenticates it so they can know that this isn't somebody else pretending to be me. Here I am. I'm writing with my own handwriting, and you can recognize it. Paul authenticated the letter with his own handwriting. His writing was apparently distinctive. The Galatians knew this. In Galatians 6.11, he writes, See with what a large letters I have written to you with my own hand, so they would know it was his hand. Now, some have even speculated from that that Paul perhaps had some kind of eye disease. Uh, but keep in mind, uh, it probably wasn't anything beyond what a lot of us have in terms of eye conditions because Paul would have been in his 50s when he wrote 1 Corinthians at least. Uh, he was probably at least pushing 50 when he wrote Galatians. It's likely that he was dealing with something most of us deal with, we call presbyopia, which literally is just Greek meaning old eyes. And uh, as our eyes get older, as we get older, uh, most of us find it harder to focus on small things up close. And so we get little things like these on my reading glasses. And that helps a lot. And I can tell you this, when I, when I prepare my sermon notes, I write them a lot larger today than I used to write them uh, when I was younger, so I don't have to have my reading glasses on the whole time, and I can look at you uh, while I'm preaching. In Paul's day, since reading glasses weren't yet invented, they weren't available, such people usually wrote with large letters. Just like I said I do with my sermon notes. But we see here the, the connection that Paul has with those who love Christ. They will take his authority as an apostle seriously. And they also have his love. In verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Love for Christ connects believers to his apostles. If Paul were on earth today, alive he would love you because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure he does more perfectly love you right now from heaven. Even if he hasn't known who you are, won't meet you until the world to come. Love for Christ connects believers to his apostles. That means that true believers will take the work of the apostles in the New Testament extremely seriously. When I was in a liberal seminary, I can tell you, uh, many of my professors and fellow students really actually despised especially the Apostle Paul. It came, I think, largely from the way that modern feminists have viewed Paul. 
Uh, one professor at the beginning of the course asked for a show of hands from those who disliked Paul. If you don't like the Apostle Paul, raise your hand. I would say that about, this is just my anecdotal uh, evaluation, about 75% of the students and nearly all of the women in that room raised their hands. Uh, the professor, to his credit, endeavored to convince them that Christians need to love the Apostle Paul's work and not reject it. Uh, but true love for Christ connects Christians to his apostles. And so if you really love Christ, you're not going to despise an apostle or a large portion or even any portion of the New Testament or of the Bible at all. We need to love the apostles and heed their words to us. The third thing we see here is that love for Christ binds Christians together as a family. Look at verse 20. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. So all the brethren in Ephesus, where Paul was, in context we say, we see here, uh, all the brethren in Ephesus greet their brethren, notice the, the word brethren there, brothers and sisters, in Corinth. That's familial language. That's language of family ties. In Matthew 12, 48 through 50, Jesus says, Who is my mother and my brothers? And Matthew tells us that he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And since the Corinthian brothers and sisters see each other regularly, they are instructed to greet one another, as Paul says, with a holy kiss. Now, does that mean that we're being disobedient to Scripture because we're not kissing each other every time we get together for worship? No. Uh, in the culture of the time, it was customary for family members to greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. The priority was for children first to kiss their father and then their mother and then other family members. That's why in Jewish culture, it became customary for disciples to kiss their teacher on the cheek. It was a statement to say, you're like a father to me. And it shows why on the one hand, Judas would use a kiss to identify Jesus, who was the teacher, to the soldiers who had come to arrest him, and say, okay, I'll, the first one I go up and greet, and I'll greet him with a kiss, because that's the teacher. And that's how you'll know which one is the one you want to arrest. So on the other hand, it shows why that makes sense. But on the other hand, it shows why it was such a heinous betrayal. And Jesus would say, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Because the way that he identified Christ as the one to be betrayed, as the one to be arrested, was with a sign of deep family affection. So here we see that Paul is expecting Christians to treat each other like family. That's really what he says. When he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he's saying, treat each other like family. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 Paul says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. 
1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So it's the kiss itself, that's not required, so much as the attitude. It's to be a holy kiss. A kiss that's not for crass or carnal purposes, but a way of expressing that these people are set apart from the world, from the rest of the world, as a particular family. Love for Christ binds believers together as a family. Which means, number four, love for Christ creates a worldwide connection to all believers. Notice again in verse 20, they're called brethren, siblings, members of the same family, of the same household. In verse 19, we see the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Asia there refers not to the whole continent that we think of as, but the Roman province that was called Asia, which would would be the, the western part of modern Turkey, or Turkey, now it's being called. All the churches there in and around Ephesus, that would include, if they were established by that time, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. All these churches send greetings to their brothers and sisters in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla particularly send greetings. They had come to Corinth previously from Rome, as we read in Acts, and Paul met them when he arrived in Corinth, and they had then gone with Paul to Ephesus. At this point, a congregation of believers was meeting in their house that they had in Ephesus. And so they and that congregation send their greetings as well. Because of your connection to Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a connection to everyone else who is connected to him. Love for Christ creates a worldwide connection between one believer and every other believer. And lastly then, number five, love for Christ results from grace. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Of course, that's Paul's benediction for the letter. He usually has such a benediction, but it's also a reminder that we could not maintain any love that we have for Christ. We wouldn't love him in the first place apart from his grace. Apart from God's grace, I would still be in my sins and I would hate him. I wouldn't love or flee to him. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. It's God's grace at work within each one of us that causes us to love Christ and then produces all of these effects that we've seen. Love the Lord Jesus Christ for who he truly is. Be eager for his return. Not only will you dwell with him in glory forever, but he will be vindicated. And Isn't that what we want? If we have a loved one who's been falsely accused, we want them to be vindicated. If we have a loved one who's been mistreated, we want that to be made right. And so we want Christ to be vindicated and glorified to the fullest extent because we love him. Your current love for and service to 
Jesus will also be vindicated. And so that's nice that that will be a side effect of that. But of course, because of our love for Christ, we just should want him to be vindicated. We want him to be shown to the world for what he is. Also, we see here the exhortation, take the authority of his apostles seriously. If you love Christ, you will take the authority of his apostles seriously. For to love him is to be connected to them. And it's through them that he gave us the New Testament. Everything we have in the New Testament was written by or endorsed by the apostles. So we need to take them very seriously. Heed them as we read their work in the New Testament. Treat other Christians as family. And of course especially your own congregation. Greet one another. Maybe not literally with a kiss, but as family. But there's a worldwide family to which you belong also. And what a glorious thing that you as a believer in Jesus Christ have a connection to every other believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what their cultural background is, what language they speak. You are one family with them. And all this stems from your love for Christ. But you can neither gain nor keep that love by your own power. You have to depend on God's grace. Flee to Christ. And trust His grace. That you might indeed exercise such love for Him and for His people. Well, let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do love Jesus. And we pray that you would build us up in that love that we may eagerly await his return, that we might heed his apostles, that we would treat one another and all believers as our family, doing all this as we depend upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.